Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. We got Eddie and Farb today. If you like the podcast, definitely subscribe, share with a friend, leave a review. This is how we grow. Uh, today in the booth, we got Nehemiah Frank, who's a Tulsa, Oklahoma native and the founder of the Black Wall Street Times. Uh, we get into the local history of Tulsa and the massacre, the Trump rally, and how Tulsa is protesting nowadays. So kick your feet up and enjoy. everyone we're back we have our friend nehemiah frank uh, founder of the black wall street times joining us from tulsa uh and as we kind of prepped on on instagram we said a little note but you know uh some of you listening have had an association already with tulsa for others you've probably been seeing it in the news nonstop. whether it's their juneteenth festival whether it's the 99th year you know coming up on the centennial of the you know tulsa race massacre or trump's uh whack ass <laughs> Uh, rally that he had the other day but um, we're excited to have Nehemiah here his you know he's got a lot of you know history with the city and of course you know we want to dig into a few things but Nehemiah thanks for joining us today yeah thanks for having me I'm very glad to be here so yeah I mean fill us in you know we've all been just watching what was happening on the ground I was super excited to see you and a lot of people we know in Tulsa do the Tulsa block party which you know brought in Russell Westbrook. I saw it brought in the, the guy who created, you know, the Watchmen, all sorts of different, you know, individuals to actually celebrate all the great things happening, you know, kind of bringing people together in Tulsa. But what was the energy like on the ground this past weekend? Man, I would probably say all the way until probably Saturday night. It was very tense. I've never felt Tulsa that racially tense before in my life. Um, people, of course, had health concerns because Trump's rally was indoors and they were trying to pack it out with 19,000 people. Luckily, only 6,200 people showed up to his rally. But, you know, there, there was a lot of clashing going on the, 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 in the wake of George Floyd's death. You know, there's been national protests everywhere. So we had already been protesting. But to pack that on top with a Trump rally, which is already racially divisive, um, but to have two teenagers, even the week before, uh, arrested for jaywalking, and that made national news, to having Major Travis Yates with the Tulsa Police Department saying that, well, we ought to shoot more African-Americans, which also made national news. But to top it all off, the cherry on the top is the fact that Trump chose to have his rally on Juneteenth. And of course, he moved it, but he still had it the day after. Juneteenth is celebrated the entire weekend, perhaps most African-Americans living throughout the South. Um, but to top it all off is he did it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is, of course, home of the Black Wall Street and familiar, for those who are familiar with the history of Tulsa, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. It couldn't have been a worse weekend for Trump to have his event here. Did people think there was a chance of violence? Did you ever see anything spill over or did it feel somewhat contained once it finally, you know, the day came? Yeah, you know, honestly, I think had Trump's rally been as big as his administration was predicting, which was like 100,000 people, I think that it would have, I think there would have been racial violence. Uh, I thought that there would probably, um, we were thinking that there were going to be like white extremists that were going to come in and 
terrorize people in Greenwood. We were really, we were really afraid of that. Um, luckily, that didn't happen. But we chose to throw our, our, green, our, uh, our Juneteenth together at the last minute. And we had uh, Al Sharpton come and speak at, at the Juneteenth Festival. And so just before he took the stage, he was getting all these death threats. And then Dr. Crutcher and some of the other speakers of the event had to do a press conference. Um, but they still went ahead with the Juneteenth speeches, which was really good and encouraging for people. Was there before? So when the announcement came out that it was going to be on Juneteenth the day, you know, there was some time, you know, before it got switched to the to the 20th. You know, what was was there some sort of was there some organization organizing happening, some some thing, sort of a, a counter protest being sort of galvanized before it actually got switched? I mean, what, what was what was going to be put in place if it had stayed on the 19th? Man, let me tell you, we stay organized in Tulsa like we <laughs> really stay organized and ready to go all the time here. But yeah, like, I mean, the second. Trump even announced his rally. Like we were already like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Like, how do we want to approach this? Are we going to shut down another freeway? Are we going to, you know, go about right. another way? But instead, in Tulsa, like, I think the best way to explain this is that, so we, we have never had Black people riot in Tulsa. Like we see this happen in other cities, but in Tulsa specifically, like Black folks have never rioted. It's usually been, well, the one and only time that white people actually rioted or people period in Tulsa rioted was in 1921. Uh, which led to a massacre of 300 Black people. You know, so that was the one thing that we did not want to do is give them the opportunity or the uh, a reason to say, oh, well, look at them. They're all rioting now because, you know, that's what they do. Um, so we didn't want to, we didn't want to give them that, that reason to demonize us any further. Um, so we called a press conference that morning and we wanted to like, just pretty much tell the 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 people that live here locally that, hey, you know, Whoever comes from other states or other cities to protest Trump, that's not us. The people that live here and that are on the ground day in and day out, we're celebrating Juneteenth. We're celebrating the liberation of African-American freedom in, in the United States. And that's what we stuck with. Now, when we heard that Trump or Pence may be coming to visit Greenwood, then that just changed everything. That's when we all kind of like mobilized and we're like, okay, well, we're going to crowd the space, crowd Greenwood Avenue. Right. So they can't get anyone down there. Um, and then also create a, a, a public relations spectacle for the Trump administration. So which would be, you know, tantamount to how they cleared the people out of Lafayette Square. They're going to clear us out of Greenwood. That's that was in our minds. Like, that's the worst thing that he could do. If Black America saw him plan his Trump rally on Juneteenth and then clear a bunch of black people out of Greenwood, it just would have. Yeah, it would have been too much. So. I didn't think they wanted to take the risk. Can you talk a bit about conceptually? I'm trying to think about the geography. You know, the demography is laid out. Greenwood is the segregated black community. That's where Wall Street was. That's where the the massacre of the po the pogrom was. Like, what how, in, in terms of Tulsa? Like, what is and also sort of in relation to where the the arena was, where the thing was. So, like the the arena where the Trump rally was was not in Greenwood, right? Was it in, it was it sort of in an adjacent town or like? What does that look like? It was sort of in a, pri a primarily white town or? So the, the entire area downtown, I would say it's pretty, it's probably much, it's pretty diverse compared to okay. like parts of the city. So um, Greenwood is on the east side of downtown. Okay. The BOK Center is on the west side of, of downtown. And then always, we, we always, 
bring up this idea that the 244 is the line of delineation when it comes to race in the city. Ah. Tell you, the people that are from like North Tulsa and even like a lot of our white allies were saying like, man, I'm actually happy for once that the 244 freeway is there because it kind of protected us from, you know, um, mixing with with the Trumpers. So I was happy to have that freeway there that day. Got it. Far, this is one. I remember you, you were, I don't know, it was some talk or something that you had. You give a lot of talks, Far, but, or you're interviewed a lot. And when, in one of these interviews, I think it was, or maybe it was last summer or something, you were getting asked about one of the things that, in terms of what you learned, that was sort of most salient or, or most surprising. And you talked about urban renewal, right? You talked about how these sort of freeways were created to just sort of decimate, just sort of cut and um, in every city I've been to in every city. Right. So that yeah. sounds like the amount It sounds like ur- the, sort of a, a part of the urban renewal history, you know, that happened, you know, sort of after in, in the, in the sort of the seventies and eighties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nehemiah can speak to it, but it, they literally dropped it right through the heart of, of Greenwood Avenue. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. The I mean, district, like where we make money, you know, so we can pay our pay folks. So Nehemiah, I mean, you know, I think like, obviously, everyone has like cliche thinking around all sorts of areas of the country, right? So if you've never been to Oklahoma, like most people probably think that it's just like a bunch of just like wild white people, all sorts of stuff. Do you feel like, and you know, I'm, I, I have a feeling, my own feeling of what this is like, but the fact that there was a lot less people showing up to the Trump rally, do you think it was partially because the area in Tulsa is kind of changing a bit? Or do you think he just flummoxed it so much and people were just truly scared because of COVID? I think it's a collection of a bunch of things. So I think COVID is definitely one of the reasons why people (laughs) decided to stay home. I'm going to guess that, and this is not to demonize the people that attended the rally, but I think a lot of his uh, white college educated voter, Trump voters, I think that they probably were like, you know, we're going to stay home. I think that that probably had a lot to do with it. Do I think that the protesters kept people from coming? I really don't think that at all. Because um, we've seen massive protests for uh, Trump's uh, 2016 campaign in Chicago. That stadium was packed there. They still packed out that stadium for him. The protesting that was going on outside, I had a few friends that were on the ground. It was way more extreme. So I'm pretty, in, not to mention, this time they had the National Guard. Yeah. The only the video phone. we all saw was that woman, Sheila Bucket arrested and it didn't seem like there was it just didn't seem like it was like a wild scenario at all right like that was bad press for them and they didn't need they created that situation yeah you know, they have to, if they would have just let her uh, protest peacefully which is what she was doing she wasn't even <laughs> she was literally sitting on the ground and the only thing she had on that would provoke them was that t-shirt which is ridiculous so i also think i really do think that people realize that Trump just doesn't have the competency to lead such a powerful country. Like, he's just not responsible. I think that people on the right realize that. It's a wild deal. I will say it's, most of the time I see his rallies, I'm like, man, he, you know, he says a lot of dumb stuff, but he's delivering whatever he's delivering for his people. This was the first one I was like, this is a sorry ass rally. I was like, I don't want to get too confident because I don't have a lot of faith in whatever this silent group is, I don't want to say it. it's not, definitely not a majority, but it's people that do show up to vote, unfortunately. But this one felt real sorry. And I, I, I felt a, a feeling of positivity I haven't felt in a while. We, I want to bring something up because um, I remember reading a while back and I was trying to tell Ed this, but your family has this really, int- I mean, you have a lot of different stories in your connection to Tulsa, but 
at some point, I believe that you got someone in your family bought a home that used to be owned by David Duke's parents. Yeah, so that was my grandparents. They purchased the childhood home of David Duke, which is insane. I have all the receipts. I really like the show. <laughs> I like showing them off, and people are like, no, I don't believe you. And then I show them, and they're like, oh my gosh, you were serious. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, if you just go to Wikipedia, you can clearly see that David Duke, the president of the, of the Klan, was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so, um, yeah, that's a pretty interesting story. I don't know, like, so my, my grandparents, they were the first black family to purchase a home in the Reservoir Hill neighborhood. Um, and was an all white community, all white neighborhood at the time of the purchase. Um, which is interesting. Like, I wonder why would David Duke's father give him that? Why would they sell that house to, to black folks? The interesting thing is, is that like, I think maybe it had something to do with the fact that my grandfather was a part of like the Mason like lodges and perhaps uh, David Duke's father, his, his name was David Duke as well, that perhaps he was a part of some sort of like Mason lodge too. And, and that's how they were able to like make the thing happen. I don't know. I don't know really much about the Masons. Were, did they, were they, I guess, were they better about just like integrating or? I, you know, I don't, I don't think that they were better about integrating. Um, but I think as far as like helping one another, I think that there was some sort of like mutual brotherhood in that type of, in that understanding. Um, because I remember like my grandfather told a story of like when the car, like a car had broken down and he got out of the car and sent some signals and a white person, a white man pulled over and helped him, which is, you know, it's kind of just strange to think about those. But yeah, there's definitely some, there's something going on there, but I don't know because <laughs> I'm not a Mason. So David Duke should have, I mean, speaking about David Duke, we should, like he was sort of a proto-Trumper, you know what I mean? And, and when you brought him up in, in FAR, when you talked about David Duke, it, it made me think about, you know, obviously this didn't happen in Tulsa, but David Duke in the 1990s in Louisiana almost won a Senate seat, you know, in the Senate race. He was, he had like 43, 40 something percent and it was um, really close to uh, getting the seat and people were really, like, people were really taken aback, like, I don't know how if it was national news or, or a lot of editorials picked it up, but people were like, "How is he winning? What is going on here? You know, how is this sort of this form former Grand Wizard um, of the Ku Klux Klan who's just sort of you know an unabashed racist? How is he about to get this sort of this this congressional seat in federal government? This seems insane in 1990, and a lot of like local reporters were." Um, sort of interviewing people and the constituents are saying like, why are you voting for this guy? Like what's going on? And the sentiment started bubbling up around that people were voting for David Duke because of uh, economic anxiety, right? I mean, if that isn't such a, a, a clear direct parallel to 2016, like, I don't know what is, you know, so Trump is really not original. Like this thing is, you know, Trump is sort of supply side, right? But the demand was there for, 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 centuries and it's produced other supply side figures like david duke who almost won a senate seat in louisiana but i don't know i just wanted to that's what when you mentioned david duke that's what made me think about well nima i got a question for you i i, I wasn't thinking about this before but since ed just touched uh, upon politics um you know your your friend someone that the community knows well greg robinson just mm -hmm. announced his candidacy for mayor uh, and eddie greg you know he's just a community guy through and through. He's worked for the Met Cares Foundation, which is affiliated with the uh, the Metropolitan Church, and just very active in all sorts of ways. So he announced his candidacy, and 
every single person I knew in Tulsa was just beside themselves pumped. Like finally someone that we feel is like a real voice. But I also understand that my association with Tulsa is a bubble of Tulsa. Um, do you think that Tulsa is ready for, uh, you know, someone of, of you, the views that, that Greg has, as opposed to, you know, GT Bynum, who, you know, people said was a purple mayor, but, you know, welcome President Trump with open arms. Well, I think that the social environment now, and especially after the mayor's week, his week was, this was the, the last week was the lowest week in his administration. And I think it's a lot, it has a lot to do with one, of course, how he's been handling the FOP situation. I think that white people are starting to become more like aware of the injustices and the disparities when it comes to, you know, police arresting black people or shooting black people or mistreating black people. Um, so they, they're starting to, to have empathy for us, which is great because they're seeing it on, they're seeing it happen on television. But I also think that, I think because GT decided to lift the curfew and to suddenly stop worrying about COVID-19. And of course, as, as Michael had just said, welcoming the president to have a rally indoors, nothing like this is happening anywhere, anywhere in the world, 7 billion people on this planet. And this one guy in this one city is deciding to have a rally, like putting everyone at risk is insane. Um, I think that that really rubbed a lot of um, the white moderates that voted for him the wrong way. And I think that they're looking for another candidate. So yeah. opportunity is is there. I think that Greg could actually win. It kind of reminds me of um, the Barack Obama 2008 election. Because everyone was like, who is this black guy in? You know, does he really think he has a shot <laughs> at winning the presidency? Um, and a lot of people didn't. I took to him immediately. I was like, man, that dude's got it. He's got something special about him. And I think it's, I think a lot of it has to do with his ability to have empathy for everybody. And that's what Greg has. He has empathy for everyone. I've never, besides Barack Obama, and truth be told, as soon as I get off this line, I'm pushing publish and I'm endorsing Greg. So I just wrote a piece. Um, to endorse him. Shit, um, exclusive. We got it first. <laughs> we got it here first. Breaking news. But yeah, he's got he's got that that off factor. I was talking to NBC News. It was a, right before I did that um, the Lester Holt thing, and I was telling the producer like there are only two people on this planet that hit my soul like lightning when they speak, and that is Barack Obama and um, Greg Robinson. I think that that guy within 20 years could easily become the president. He has that tie. And I've never said that about anybody in my life, but he actually has, he has that. And he's connected nationally to, to political figures. I mean, look, wow. it, 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 would, it would be big news if he won in Tulsa. That, yeah, that would be. here, of course, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's gonna be fun to watch. I mean, I will say, I, you know, from doing some work in Tulsa, I haven't seen people as energized about anything as much as they've been about Greg's candidacy. And that's, I even felt that I'm like sitting, you know, in Brooklyn and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that I can feel this energy here of something happening. And, you know, it's, it's on so many levels, but you, you kind of said it right in the sense of like, you know, like any place, and especially like in Tulsa, like you really have to be able to speak to everyone 
Uh, and to see so many different people jump in and say, Greg's my guy already has been really interesting. So I'm excited to see when, when is, uh, the, the, when is, um, the election? Is it this year or next? Yeah. So the, the primary is going to be August 25th. And then of course, if there's a runoff, they'll, they'll go to November 3rd. Yep. Wow. Crazy. You talked about the, um, your, your, your segment on the Lester Holt, um, nightly news. You know, how was, how did you get selected for that? Also, by the way, Morgan is, is, is the homie. I know her from New York. She's great. Um, you know, so how was it working with Morgan? And then also like, wh- how, how did that opportunity come about exactly? So Morgan, she is cool. Like, right. I, mean, I didn't feel like I was beneath her. Like she just made me feel so comfortable. So that was the first thing that I noticed about her. She made it easy to, to, to be interviewed. But I can also tell that not just as a journalist, but just as a, as a person of color, like we just had the best, it's kind of like how we're having now or the conversations that Michael and I have had, just real authentic conversations about what is actually happening and how we're lucky to be getting into spaces to where we can actually help drive the change that we seek to have. And so when we made that connection, I was like, oh yeah, this is perfect. We let's <laughs> work out. I hope I get to work with her again when the centennial comes around. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. So that, that, I mean, that's definitely, that'll be her, her assignment, her story for sure. How, do you, I um, mean, do you think you guys are ready for the centennial? I mean, I, I've been getting nervous. Man, let me tell you. <laughs> Before... <laughs> Let me tell you, before George Floyd's death, I was like, oh, Lord, this is about to be a hot mess. Like, I really, yeah. But now, like, I think you, you kind of spoke to it again. Like, the energy that's just blossoming is beautiful. Mm. Um, the mayor and even the White House were stigmatizing the protesters as these bad people outside and how we were preventing people from coming to this rally. But at the end of the night, all of those protesters... And there were more white people than black people, by the way, marched into Greenwood. At first, I was nervous. I was like, oh, God, what's happening? And everyone <laughs> off, okay, make sure, you know, you're watching the crowd and all of that. But, man, it was, it was amazing. Like, I saw white Americans celebrating Juneteenth with black people on Greenwood. It was just beautiful. I, I yeah. won't forget that day. Not, never. It it's, it, it's special. I mean, you know. There's, it's easy at times, I think, to get a little pessimistic because like there's some stuff like we've seen before in the rhetoric, but we were talking about this last week. I mean, there are things that we just can't say don't feel different right now. Uh, Just never seen more people dive in deeper. And at a certain point in time, even if it's the fact that people feel like they have to move forward, that's also a good thing. I'm I'm not going to just fully just say, you know, if the general movement is forward and everyone feels that they're compelled to do it, but with some of them being all the way in, that's better than everyone just being ambivalent uh, and waiting for something to happen. So I don't know. I It's been funny. I've been in all sorts of uh, monument conversations and the slippery slope and this and that. But I would say most of the people in those conversations, even if they're, if they're trying to figure it out, they're like, I actually don't really care about these monuments. And I think that's where most people are. It's like, I think a lot of the fight that so many people have had, and there's some people who still have them, but I think a lot of people who had been on the fence with all of the energy that's getting pushed, the things that they were kind of fighting or reticent about before, they're kind of like, 
I don't know. Fuck it. I guess like, let's just move this forward. Like what, why did I even care so much about that? Um, and that, that has felt good to see because we have so much bigger things to work on to be just squabbling over some dumb shit. Something that's not dumb shit, which I, I alluded to at maybe the top of it, or maybe it was before I hit record. I want to talk a little bit, you, you said you're going to hit play on, or press a go on you know, your article in the Black Wall Street Times. But I want you to talk about you know, starting that and its voice, but also your voice in the education community in Tulsa. Maybe you can, we can get into that in a sec, but maybe you can paint the picture to everyone of kind of where you've been and like why this has been a direction you, you've jumped into. Yeah, so uh, when I first arrived to Tulsa, I remember going to a gas station and looking for the Oklahoma Eagle. And I found it far and few in in between. Like, I didn't really, I went to another gas station and I didn't see it. Um, But then once I went to Greenwood, I actually found a coffee. And it just wasn't where I thought that it should be. That's just one thing. And then that second thing is is, um, social media. Like, they just, the Eagle wasn't strong uh, at that time. And I remember reaching out to the editor and saying, hey, you know, I can help you guys with your social media presence to help the help the paper get some more exposure to a younger audience. And at the time, they weren't really interested in that. I, I even offered to write write for them. And I, now I don't have a communications degree at all or a journalism degree. My degree was in political science or is in political science. But I knew that something needed to happen. So eventually... Um, I, like I started to realize how um, important in controlling the narrative is, especially when it came to criminal justice reform or education reform. I swear if I even say that word, people get triggered. But yeah, like I, I felt like we needed a platform to where we could really a legitimate looking at the time, like looking platform that people that was believable, so people could see it and be like, oh, that came out of you know that publication. So maybe we should take what they're saying seriously. But then also there were a lot of times in the community where Black people would go to the press and their stories were ignored because, you know, it wasn't click-worthy, I guess. Um, And so I wanted to be that, I wanted the Black Wall Street Times to be that, that vehicle to amplify the voices of not only just Black people, but all marginalized people, period. So I consider like what we do at the Black Wall Street Times journalistic activism because right. we punch as hard as we need to to try to get to try to drive change and then also it's a great way to organize people quickly the reason why we were able to fill up greenwood so fast during the rally is because you know we were putting out messages and stuff but then also like when it comes to trying to get people to go to the city council meeting people are always talk about oh the black folks are not civically engaged like, well, if you tell them that this city and council meeting is important, they're going to show up. They will show up. And so that's what's been happening. Same thing with the with the, the school board. Say, hey, you know, there's some changes going down and we need your support. We need you to get down to, to the school board. And if you need a ride, we can organize a ride for you. So it's really been great for organizing masses of people. I mean, Ed, what I was referring to is like, they get so much engagement off of issues that quite frankly, I think for most people would be boring, right? Like it's not the typical type of stuff. Like the three of us, like we geek out on this, like we love these things, but I'm so shocked to see so many people talking about school board meetings or like city council meetings. And they're really, it's, it's I like that you called it, um, I don't know if you said it was like 
like activism journalism or something like that but i never thought about it in that respect but in a way that is what it is like you're you're giving people real facts and news but you're also giving them especially because of how enabled on social media it is this ability to interact and to discuss uh and to find ways for themselves to get involved and to me i honestly I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, we've done breakout events in over 16 cities across the country. Like we're pretty tapped in with most of the civic organizations in, in almost all of these cities. I have not seen someone do something like actually you're doing. And it's what I love about it is even when I'm not in Tulsa, I feel so connected because I feel like I know what's happening on a granular level because you're actually reporting on it. Have you seen, am I missing it? Are other people doing this or do you kind of feel like you're in this field all by yourself right now? So man, I, I do feel like I'm in a bubble. Like I feel like we're in a bubble here in Tulsa, um, but we are, we're expanding. So we're mm. looking for journalists in, in, in other cities. I know we picked up two in Oklahoma City. Oh, awesome. Uh, type of journalistic activism. And then also Atlanta, I'm looking for people to connect with it in Atlanta who are interested in doing journalistic activism because I feel like it's needed on the ground. A hundred percent. The press is set has huge ability to mobilize people. And even the past has been used for like really horrible mobilization. I mean, lynchings, the press, the press would publicize lynchings and turn it into a carnival-esque setting with right. hundreds of people, thousands of people, children, souvenirs, like that doesn't happen without the press. Right. So the press is just a huge activist tool and has historically been um, for both sides, <laughs> like terrorist activism and then, you know, sort of just activism. Right. So, I mean, um, w before you started this black press, I mean, had there had there been black press in Tulsa in, in the past? Like, is it a revival of a past newspaper or, or a publisher or, or was it sort of unique? So I would say that. Uh... At one time during the, the 1920s, there were over 33 black uh, publishers yeah. in the newspaper printing business in Oklahoma. 33. And now we have, um, and before the times, I think there were just two, like one in Oklahoma City and one here. And they're both historical, uh, historical black papers. But ever since we popped on the scene, like they've become very polished. And there is no competition between both papers like we literally share articles back and forth between both platforms because we just want to inform our people and and help them as you know as much as we can but you know also that like tulsa is and i would say specifically north tulsa like north black tulsa mm -hmm. uh, is unique because a lot of those families are old and they can trace their their lineages back to black wall street's golden era so the families are long. Like I literally will walk into a grocery store or pop in a food place in North Tulsa. Um, and a person, the person's like 60 or 70. I swear I've never met them in my life. They'll be like, you're a cherry or you're a Frank. Like they can, they just know my family without even, without even knowing about the Black Wall Street Times. The families are really tight here. Hey, was, I, I, I haven't, you know, I, I have no idea. Do you know how the massacre was covered in the press at the time? Do you, is, I mean, was, is there any, you know, sort of documentation about sort of how they looked at it at the time? Um, so there's this book called The Tulsa Disaster, um, written by Mary um, Jones Parrish. And she has okay. 
multiple eyewitness accounts of people who experienced the massacre. But also there's there's a John Hope Franklin's narrative and account of what took place in, in 1921. But another thing that I feel like is not really discussed is the fact that some of the other Black newspapers in like Kansas City and St. Louis, they were reporting about the narrative, they were reporting the stories that the Blacks who ran out of Tulsa and went to those places, they were recording their stories and they're documented. And so I think Got that people really start looking into that too and, and adding those accounts to uh, the historical archives. Was, was the white press at the time framing it differently or were they suppressing it completely? Like what was the white press doing? So there was a lot of yellow journalism going on as far as like what took place during the massacre. I do believe there's tale that there was an article that was published that there was going to be a lynching. But now that document is just has completely vanished from Tulsa papers, which is just so bizarre. But I think white media, they, they wrote it from their perspective and in their um, frame of thinking at the time, which was uh, laden with racism, right? Yeah. And I don't think that the Jewish the Jewish people here, I don't think that they had any type of media at the time either. So I think it was just kind of like the the people that were the most vulnerable to, you know, Klansmen running around and lynching folks didn't have, <laughs> it was difficult for us to report our stories. Right. I mean, that's, that's sort of part and parcel of the terrorism itself, you know, the lynching, but also the suppression of, of the voices of those people sort of go hand in hand with that. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that, that makes sense. I think I was just reading the New York Times. I don't know if it was Harding or who was president at that time, but even the president, I think, I mean, who knows how much he really cared, but the article was saying that he did give some speech where he alluded to it because he was kind of freaking out of just like how bad it was, but of course couldn't actually really say how bad it was because he didn't want to piss off, you know, white voters, but had to at least, he used the language to like at least give some credence to what was happening. And of course the lightest of ways. Um, but I hadn't seen that before. I thought it was totally buried. Did you hear what I said? I said kind of like how, how GT has treated everything lately. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what that is, though. It's, it's horrible. But a lot of folks just can't see it. They don't see it that way. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm really hopeful. You know, you guys have a year to, to get things going. But, you know, I, I can't not help myself but think of EGI and what they did in Montgomery and with Brian and his team. And, you know, they've the hundreds of thousands of people that are making that pilgrimage every single year, one, the understanding and the learning that's happening from it, but two, the economic boom that's also happening to that city and why Tulsa, you know, couldn't be a part of, of that as well as they're on their own journey. And um, I actually was there in September and was in Tulsa a week after. And it was like, all I could think about, I was like, oh my God, you know, the Legacy Museum and the Memorial, two of the most powerful things I've ever witnessed in my life. And, you know, the cultural center in Greenwood, while it's the most powerful thing we have currently because of, you know, the historians and, and, and the pictures, it's obviously like incredibly lacking. Oh my God, absolutely. So... I'm just, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that this is the, the light the fire because I, you know, I, I keep, like anything, I'm sure that there's just warring interests 
uh, of what people want. And I'm, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if there's not enough money. If there's not, then like people need to dip in and figure it out. But, you know, I'm hopeful that the time is now. And I don't know, it's going to, I don't think a center is going to be ready in one year's build, but crazier things have happened. Um, yeah. You know, for some reason, I kind of have faith that they may just finish that, the, the $25 million museum that they're, that they're planning to build in Greenwood. Yep. I think that they might be able to pull it off, but we'll see, you know. I think that it'll be a great tribute to my community and, and our legacy. I hope that we're ready for the huge influx of, of tourists. And I yeah. think that, you know, the Black community should be able to capitalize on that. And the city owes it to my community to ensure that they are positioned to do so. What are some of the things that you've thought about that need to happen in, in between for that to be ready? I would definitely say social and economic development. I don't know if you like seeing some of our uh, police funding, but it is mm. so extreme. And then when we look at, at the social and economic development's budget, it's just astronomically lower than how much funding we actually do put in policing communities, which are predominantly people of color. Yeah. So if yeah we can reallocate that to actual development for the community. I think that more people would be positioned to capitalize on all of the tourists that will be coming. Do you think that it's necessary for the development to focus around that Greenwood section or does it not matter, you know, where it is? I think that it should definitely be around that Greenwood area because it's walkable and that's where people are at. With all of the protests and the Juneteenth celebration, most of the businesses uh, around that area have, like, they've been booming. Yeah, they should be, I mean, this is everywhere in the country, but they should be triple downing on figuring out ways to open up Black businesses. I mean, if there were, were 10,000 people and God knows how many city blocks at some point, I mean, the, the thing is, there's how many black businesses are really in that area right now? Like eight? Yeah, I mean, probably about eight. Yeah, it's, it's just not, it's not, I mean, they, they, there, there should be aggressive commitments to like, we have eight, why aren't there 40 or 50? No kidding. Plus, sure. you know, like how, yeah. you're 100. Yeah, like, like, let's like, you know, really figure out how to do this. So, you know, that's something uh, I'm interested to see. But uh, yeah, I mean... You know, for, for the, all those who haven't been to Tulsa, you know, what do you hope, you know, from, from this news and learning about Black Wall Street, you know, as they're on Twitter, as they're on, you know, Lester Holt, all these different things, what do you think that they're missing from this and you hope that, what should they know or like, what should they be diving into in a deeper way? Um, I would probably say uh, economic justice for Black people. Straight mm. up. I think that what you said about, you know, there should be aggressive attention on building Black businesses. That's what we need. We need to be able to have a fishing rod and be able to catch as many damn fish as we want. You know, that's not happening. We're literally relying on other people at all times, it seems, to, to do those things for us. There's this one gentleman who has a, a painting, like, you know, what's the name of that little place? Like, you know how they have uh, like little art spaces where it's like the perfect place to take a date? And everybody yeah, yeah. like painting the same thing. And the, so he had one of those places in North Tulsa. I'm like, man, if this dude was on Greenwood, oh my gosh, he would be making so much money. He would be able to franchise his business like within a year's time. But there was no access or anyone saying, hey, this is the direction to go. And I think that that's the missing component 
of um, making black businesses successful. Um, this is like a lot of, because we've been not only economically suppressed, but we've been academically suppressed as well. And so, because we don't have access to, to certain, you know, spaces, such as um, professors who know how to do communications and have time to sit with a black person and say, hey, you wanna go into communications? This is how you do it. And this is how you do it successfully. This is how you make money. This is how you do all of these things. The knowledge of how to have a, how to run a successful business isn't just gonna pop out of our heads. Like someone has to plant that seed. Somebody has to give you the blueprint so you can follow it and be able to become successful. And so I think that that's one of the things that's that's missing. So it's just sharing the sharing of information to people who have not been privy to, you know, that type of knowledge to make them successful. I honestly think that that's how the Black Wall Street Times is starting to move a lot faster because people are coming in that know what the hell they're doing and <laughs> say, hey, can I help you? Absolutely. There it is. Well, for everyone listening, follow Black Wall Street Times on Facebook, follow them on Instagram, get involved in the conversation. If you're listening to us and you haven't heard us rail about economic justice, then I don't even know what the fuck you've been listening to. So <laughs> that is that is a tenement to us. But uh, Nehemiah, I appreciate having you on uh, and keep up the good fight. And if you, if you all are listening in Atlanta, drop us a line on some good folks uh, to send his way. All right, everyone. We'll see hey. you next week. You guys Peace. Like, thank you for having me.